I know all your tricks. And you're going to fall for them. So you think you can get me? Any minute I want. You're conceited. But attractive. Now, let me Shut up. You. Kiss me. Hello, and welcome to Season 4 of How Would Lubitsch Do It? A podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's 1932, and Will Ross joins us for further discussion of Trouble in Paradise. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, a link to our Discord, or just to say hi. Hello, everyone. We are back for the second half of our Trouble in Paradise episode. We're here with Will Ross, returning guest. It's your fourth episode on the show about our 80th episode recording together on the film formerly brand. I'm going to call it a brand now. Welcome back. And this was one of the films that you demanded. I asked you, what do you want from the season? You were like, I'll take Trouble in Paradise unless you get someone more famous. And I didn't. So you're on this uh, episode about it might be the single most famous of Lubitsch's films. It's probably one of three films in that conversation. And and yeah, uh, so what aside from the fact that this is one of the most famous, beloved romantic comedies in all of film history, why do you want to do Trouble in Paradise of all the movies? Well, first of all, just to disclaim, I think the only film I out and out demanded was Heaven Can Wait. Not because it's my favorite Lubitsch, to be clear, but we can talk about that more when we get to the Heaven Can Wait episode. But why did I want to do Trouble in Paradise? Part of it was because I felt honestly like the Lubitsches that I had done uh, already on this podcast. No, I don't know. I guess this is a slight. There's no way to say it. I was going to say no slight to them, but like they're relatively minor Lubitsch, right? How dare you call Where Is My Treasure minor? And that in some ways can make them a bit more challenging to talk about, especially like trying to formally dissect them in like meaningful ways, right? I had to repeatedly drop caveats of like, oh, it's easy to try to ascribe meaning and stuff when we are like, we might just be overborrowing forward context from the director's career, et cetera, et cetera, right? And I honestly find like talking about incredible, uh, often canonical works easier. It's oftentimes people say like, oh, it's, there's, there's nothing left to say. What am I supposed to say about Trouble in Paradise? But the thing is the reason like great art is inexhaustible, right? Where is my treasure is... Very exhausted. <laughs> I think we exhausted it. We like, you know, I'm glad we established like we got you on record as admitting that you like goblins. There's a reason there's no part two of the Where's My Treasure episode, but Troll in Paradise, it's just like attractive to me, not because it's like it's not even top five Lubitsch for me, which is obviously that's not a slight, but it's just so acclaimed and like so spoken about. And like it's it's the closest, as you mentioned in your episode with Tanya to being considered a quintessential Lubitsch, although arguably a couple of his others in the last couple of decades have been like kind of running closer to that position. And it just makes it so that like I have something that like I can just pull almost any moment, no matter how talked about it is, and find something new to dig into. Right. It's it's really rare in my experience. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a slave uh, to the collective determinations of canon. You know, I have no independent thinking of my own. But it's it tends to be the case that when a film is very heavily acclaimed, that whether it deserves that degree of acclaim or not, like canon level acclaimed, I'm talking right, whether it deserves that degree of acclaim or not, there is typically a lot of density of things to talk about and to dissect about it. And so I just I just wanted to get off 
I just wanted to not, I didn't want to just get off. I just wanted to get off the challenge train, right? I just wanted to do something a little bit easier and a little bit breezy and fun. And Trouble in Paradise is nothing if not a very breezy, very fun movie. In fact, to such a degree that like, I think I, I would say that's like part of why it's not, it doesn't quite hit my top five, right? Where it's, it's just not quite as humanely invested in its characters as Lubitsch's absolute best top tier work. But I, I, I think it's still a great movie and it's just fun to talk about. It's always fun to throw on. It just whooshes by even irrespective of its relatively short runtime. Yeah. Trouble in Paradise is one of the films that I, as I was getting into Lubitsch initially, it was always one of the films that I felt, oh, I, I don't quite see why this is so feted as his greatest work by so many people. And I think over the past few months, I've probably watched it four times in the past few months for to record these episodes and for other reasons, mm -hmm. teaching classes on the movie. It, it's really opened up for me. And at this point, I hold it in as high esteem as any other Lubitsch practically now. And right. there is so much in it, in the rhythm of the film. And it, the film is almost seduction in film form for me, where it is so swooning and it is so simultaneously offhanded in its swooning. It manages to be both sincerely just romantic and erotic, while also throwing wrenches into all of those ideas constantly. Uh, I don't know how it pulls that off quite. I, I don't know if there's even an explanation other than just the sheer skill of all involved. But to get into this, I mean, you mentioned before we recorded that you in particular wanted to talk about the first five minutes of the film. And I think that's great because to me, the first five minutes of this movie are among the greatest achievements in American cinema. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's one of the most romantic passages in any film. But but also, maybe a way to get into that is you have a major correction. I made a huge mistake in, my, in the past episode. Yeah, I, this, this is going to shatter everyone's illusions about my qualifications to talk about the show. What did we get wrong, Will? This is going to destroy the fabric of our old conversation. Listen, buddy. You can sarcastically downplay this all you want, but we are on the film formally imprint. We get we get this stuff right around here. We take this stuff. So when you call what is clearly a tenor voice garbage man a soprano, Listen. I can't let it stand. I can't let it go uncorrected. And I can't even just do a passing correction. We have to apologize to the listeners. So on behalf of both of us, I, I'm sorry, everyone. You know, there's all these words flying around. You know, when you talk music, there's so many words flying around. Baritone, alto, soprano, tenor, yeah. Yeah. meter. Who who can remember all those words? You know, if, if I if I screw up sometime and say uh, a baritone is below a tenor, what's that line that all the people who have to apologize for things say? This isn't easy and I'm going to learn to grow and, and become a better, better person. <laughs> right, right. All right. So tell us about the first five minutes. You know, we, the yeah. film, as we mentioned last episode, starts with this uh, tenor garbage man. So I think for this episode, it's part two of talking about Trouble in Paradise. And beyond that, I, I think it's just reasonable to assume that everyone listening is decently familiar with Trouble in Paradise. I'm not saying like, you know, every beat scene for scene or anything like that. But I'm, I'm going to assume, you know, the general plot. So I don't have to re-recap things. Um, uh, Devin and Tanya did a good job, I think, of like going over it and what's like intoxicating and interesting and fun about the narrative last episode. And if you haven't seen Trouble in Paradise by now, then like you have, you know, odd podcast listening habits and that's OK. But I am nonetheless making that assumption. So everyone who hasn't seen it, buckle up. 
One of my favorite ways to start formally dissecting any film is to ask, how does this movie teach us to watch it? Devin and I both talk about this a lot. When we make work together, uh, this is a foremost consideration for us, uh, especially in the first half of like whatever movie we happen to be making together. How does the movie teach us to watch it? Because with any movie, you would hope that there's something that makes it stand apart from other movies, right? Something that makes it a unique experience. And that's great. But because it's a unique experience, the audience is going to have to learn on the go somewhat. And sometimes movies teach us to watch them just by expecting us to do all the legwork, right? And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That you know, it's it's a specific kind of movie and there there are drawbacks to doing that, but it allows you to get away with like going farther with certain things on the other hand, right? It's a trade-off of accessibility versus getting to get a bit more extreme with whatever experimentation you're doing. But in any case, Trouble in Paradise uh, does not have the problem of not teaching us how to watch it. Uh, And the opening minutes, I think, are a great case study in this idea in a lot of ways and a really complicated case study that I'm not going to, again, be able to exhaust just from how I talk about it here. But here's my general take on it. So we've got the opening handful of shots showing the Venice gondolier dumping trash onto onto the gondola and singing in a beautiful tenor voice. And I I think the meaning of this opening moment is decently straightforward, right? Which is that no matter how elegant and refined the behavior and the environment may be, trash is trash, right? I think it's not a coincidence that the next time we see a gondola a few minutes later, it has Miriam Hopkins in it, lying down, not just sitting in the gondola, but lying in it, deliberately visually echoing the trash that we saw in the first gondola, right? I think... The people in this movie, Lubitsch considers to be bad people. He thinks, basically, he's saying they're trash, right? I know that you, Devin, don't think this movie is cynical. Uh, This is a a point where I I definitely depart from you. I think it's a very, very, very cynical movie. I think this is so cynical that it's pretty darn close to the most cynical Lubitsch movie I've seen. It is very observant about the motivations and the emotional whims of the people it's cynical about, right? Like, Lubitsch is ultimately like a person who's trying to understand and empathize with human beings, right? Like he's not trying to make us hate the characters, but I I don't think he's at all above us judging or disliking the characters or doing so himself, right? And I, I, I think that there's a few cues in this whole opening sequence or like the opening five minutes, whatever, that are kind of him cueing us into that. And the biggest one on that point is the trash. There's trash in the gondola and there's a guy singing... And, you know, it's doesn't matter where you are, you know, who you are is who you are and class doesn't determine your worth. These are not good people. Their impulses are relentlessly selfish. Any flashes of empathy on their parts are more than counterbalanced by their hypocrisy. That's my general take on the movie and its characters. I'm sure we can get into this more, but I think it's a reasonable place to approach Trouble in Paradise. Anyway, opening shots. Lubitsch is using like a really forceful contrast to remind us that a high circumstance does not equate to high character. I, I don't think Lubitsch admires anyone in the movie. Uh, maybe he likes them, maybe he doesn't. But I don't think he believes they're good people. So following that opening scene, we get a really curious shot that I want to talk about. And to me, this is maybe the most interesting shot in the first five minutes, more so than the more famous big old tracking shot. This is a shot that seems to be depicting an empty drawing room at night, right? It's a static composition 
Uh, the left side of the screen is a messy, barely visible desk. On the right, we can see a huge like balcony window looking direct, like huge isn't very tall, uh, looking directly out over Venice, right? We can still hear the gondolier uh, singing after the cut to this shot. So it's implied that the windows are directly over the Venice canals, right? A, a, obviously a very attractive property by any measure. So after a couple seconds on this static composition, something really unusual happens, which is that the camera pans over to the right. Not a huge pan, but enough to move the desk off screen and to reveal and center a second very large balcony window just to the right of the first one. There's, the thing about this is there's nothing especially distinct about this second window, right? It's not like he pans over and we go, oh, a second balcony window, right? <laughs> we're, not, yeah. we're not shocked at this incredible reveal of a second balcony window. It's not like it's meant to make us real with the fact that they're even more affluent than we expected from the first shot. The only thing that happens to be distinct about it is that there's like a tree right outside the window, which is not especially distinct at all. So just after the pan, a silhouette runs into the frame from the foreground, climbs over the railing of that balcony, and descends that tree just outside the window. So I think what's strange and important and notable about this movement is that it's done in anticipation of the figure who moves into the frame and the actions that he performs. Right? It's much more typical, especially in the context of Hollywood filmmaking, for camera movements to either match a figure's movements, that is, the movement begins at roughly the, or exactly the same time that the character's movements do, or react to them, that is, the character moves and then the camera quickly follows. So let's put a pin in that for just a moment. Right, A few shots later, the most famous camera movement in the film and one of the most famous camera movements in the 1930s cinema happens, right? From outside the drawing room, the camera is just peering in until the man inside, Francois Philobub, played by Edward Everett Gordon, just collapses to the ground. And then the camera laterally tracks away from the window, along the wall of the building, then it cranes out away from the building, it curves around it, around the corner of it, and it races along until it reaches another window on the other side of the building to reveal Herbert Marshall smoking at the balcony of his own room. I should mention it's all stitched together by some exquisite model work. Yes. Yeah, it's it's three shots. The transition between the center model shot that has like the really elegant camera movement. Uh, it's done by hard cuts and they are noticeable. But I believe that when you are a true cinephile, you know it because you don't care that there are obvious hard cuts in that moment. <laughs> Let's get into why, because, uh, you know, let, we'll consider all of these three beats together. What do they have in common? right? The garbage man and the weird pan to the right from inside the drawing room. And then this huge move. What do all three of these beats have in common, right? I'd say that they all carry a strong implication of authorial observation and comment, right? The trash gondolier is an obviously symbolic moment, right? It's one of those moments in a work of art where you go like, okay, that is a symbol being placed there by the person who made this. Like it's yeah. not... Like it's seamlessly integrated into your expectations of how the movie will play out. And it holds no real implications on the film's narrative. It's probably the only moment of the film that you could say that about where there are zero implications on the film's narrative. Even the singing radio ad 
does somewhat advance the narrative. The unusual pan in the dark drawing room heavily suggests that the film is ahead of its own characters, right? That it knows their moves before they do. In other words, the camera or the film or Lubitsch or whatever term you want to use for this authorial presence, this authorial presence is willing to follow its own impulses. And that implication's solidified further by like that long tracking shot around the building, right? Uh, it's a shot that has no movement or action motivating it whatsoever. It simply implies a voyeuristic authorial presence that knows where it wants to go, why, and who is interesting to it when it gets there. There's a storytelling function to the shot, which is to show that it's in the same building. But I think it would be a mistake to suggest that the shot is just, oh, this is just a formally economic means of establishing that the two rooms are in the same building. It would be totally in keeping with Lubitsch's style to, here's an example I just cooked up. I'm not saying this is what Lubitsch would do, but you could follow the two prostitutes who knock on uh, Philippa's door and walk away from Those his room. Those are business associates. Business associates. <laughs> right, yeah. The two business associates who knock on Philippa's door and walk away from the room. You could have the camera kind of pan to follow them and then have a waiter walk by and the camera then just pans to decide to follow him and it follows him down the hall in another direction and then cut to that waiter arriving at Herbert Marshall's sweet door and knocking on it. That would take as much or less time easily, and it would follow Hollywood conventions of centering visual storytelling around character movements and decisions, and it would probably incur significantly less production expenses Yes, uh, on a production that was already not one of Lubitsch's most opulent. The shot calls a lot of attention to itself and its own movement, and given Lubitsch's general economy of style, I think we have to understand this partly, at least, as a deliberate insistence on an outside perspective, not only Lubitsch's perspective, but on our own perspective on the proceedings. Uh, I think it's, along with a lot of his other devices, somewhat of a distancing effect where he's encouraging us to consider these characters from the outside, right? To really be aware of the satirical implications of the film. And that shot, before we jump off into discussion, I just want to note, because I enjoy this uh, for fun, uh, that the shot's schema is echoed and partly reverse later in the film after Marshall's his after his thief character gets found out by um, Philippa by Edward Everett Horton. The camera looks at the thief, right? Marshall standing at the window of Calais bedroom. And then it tracks over to the next window as he leaves the room. And then it cranes down to a mm -hmm. lower floor window where Adolf is sitting waiting. So it's a reversal of the earlier shots dynamic, right? That time. We started on Philippa, on Horton, victimized but not knowing yet, then moved to another room to show Marshall, the, one, the guy who did it, staring out the window, the deed having been done, right? And this time we start on Marshall, and he's been exposed but doesn't know it yet. Then we move to another room to show Adolf, who is armed with everything he needs to humiliate and evict Marshall. Obviously, Marshall, being a much sharper man than Horton's character, gets out of it a little more elegantly. <laughs> So that's that's my that's my general take and on the opening minutes of Trouble in Paradise. And I think it's effective both because it does a great job setting an aloof comic tone for the film, which I think that's it's fair. I think we can agree on that. that that's the film's overriding tonal register. Right. And it's a way for Lubitsch to, like, give himself significant freedom to comment on the proceedings as an author. Right. Like mm -hmm. he, he's giving himself freedom to do things that make us aware of his presence. You know, you think of all 
the unusual cutaways, the wipe edit montages of yes, madam, no, madam, yes, Mr. LaSalle, no, Mr. LaSalle, and so on and so forth, things that I'm sure we'll get to talking about at least a few of them over the course of this recording. But in any case, uh, what I'm saying here is like the Lubitsch touch, it's it's a phrase I'm like, uh, I almost regret even bringing it up in earlier recordings because it's something you can define a thousand different ways and every one of those ways will be valid. But I, to me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to bring it up here because I, I think I have a, a bit of a theory of the case. The reason the term the Lubitsch touch exists is because audiences could detect a clear, forcefully authorial presence that rather than just functionally capturing a narrative by adhering its presentation, you know, the presentation of the narrative to the plot progression and character beats, rather than that, the, that authorial presence has its own agenda for what it wanted to see and how it wanted to show that to you. And it wasn't afraid to remind you that it existed, right? The Lubitsch touch as a term exists because it is both a very distinct point of view that this authorial voice has and because it is so willing to remind you it existed, right? Like it's, we don't talk about the Hawks touch because Hawks isn't quite as eager to remind you of the presence of, of commenting personality behind the camera. So that like, maybe that's why Trouble in Paradise gets cited as the quintessential Lubitsch so often, right? Like it's a descriptor with problems that you rightly alluded to in the last episode, calling this film quintessential Lubitsch because he's, his filmography is very diverse. And I don't think this film is closer to encapsulating his common elements than a lot of his other films, but it's ostentatious with the devices that formulate his perspectives on characters, on their behaviors and their politics. And there's a confidence in his use of these devices that I would personally say, I haven't seen every single one of his earlier films, but I haven't seen in the films preceding this. And to an extremity that I haven't seen in anything after this. One might call this the quintessential film of his most famous era, which is yeah. the pre-code era of Lubitsch. I mean, if I had to say, okay, you know, uh, what's the what's the most of the, what's the most maximal version of this era? It's the Merry Widow. <laughs> that right. film is bigger. Uh, it's authorial control. Of the camera is even more overt, yeah. um, but it's also bodier and doesn't have that ineffable balance of this film the, the merry widow is a bit more overtly goofy with cartoon characters and this film is a little it's a little more restrained and has that kind of slight butterflies in your stomach swooning effect and i do think that that's another element of why that dolly shot works so well a more prosaic economical shot wouldn't have the same feeling of a sweep. Like there's a, mm -hmm. there's just a dynamism to that movement, right? Where it's so fast. It's so large scale, even though it's a model, it feels large scale. It, it suddenly feels like we're in this wonderful fantasy in a way that, you know, going from room to room might not achieve. You can achieve it through other means, but this is one means through which to achieve it. I, I do want to register my disagreement with your reading of the film as cynical. I don't see it as cynical. I see it as maybe the best example of a film governed by the stereotypical Lubitsch code of ethics, which is that, you know, in this film, being upstanding morally, really, that's a dimension that's not even virtue in the kind of sense that us in our societies might think of it, isn't a variable in this world that really matters. What really matters is, are you sophisticated? Do you have good matters? Are you inherently from the core, are you a smooth operator? 
<laughs> right? And the degree to which you're a smooth operator. Like, I love the scene with Charles Ruggles plays one of uh, Cole's suitors as he tries to help her find her lost purse. And she goes into the dame's bathroom and he follows her and he gets chewed out. And and this is and he, he's embarrassed when he's out. He's like, mm, mm. you know, he has a look on his face like, OK, he's trying to hide his embarrassment. And I love that as a piece of character building because it shows that deep down this man is not he is not sophisticated. He is an unsophisticated person who doesn't actually who hasn't fully internalized the manners of the societies he's, he's in, who is pretending to be. And as soon as he panics, that all falls away. When Gustav panics, he never he doesn't panic. Gustav doesn't panic. He in every single situation upholds not a stiff upper lip, but he upholds his sophisticated core. And that's what makes him an inherently, you might say, upper class person in this in this world where class right. is less about how much money you have or your birth, but about the elegance through which you glide through life. Right. And, it's the nouveau poor thing, right? Exactly. And yeah. and so, you know, this is a film where stealing from one another is a love language. <laughs> Colet, for example, you know, you know the scene where she kind of feigns, in my opinion, ignorance or disinterest as a way of preventing the board from cutting the wages of her workers. That scene to me is very uncynical because it's someone essentially putting on the airs of an out-of-touch aristocrat to do something, I think, pretty good. <laughs> and humanistic. I, I don't see the film as necessarily condemning anyone on screen. It's just a film where we can escape, you know, in a funny way, it's an escapist film because it's a film where you can kind of escape from your own morality to live in this other world where there's, you know, the things that we would generally consider immoral, bad or frivolous take on an incredible weight. So that's my rant about that. I hear like I agree with a lot of what you're saying, but like you you have a fundamental idea. I, I think your thesis here is that, correct me if I'm wrong, the morality of your behavior is not something that the film is interested in its configuration of how people are. In the movie's configuration, sophistication is merit, not moral behavior, right? So sophistication, elegance, the errors you put on successfully, that's what dictates how, in the film's twisted world, heroic you are. First of all, I think that what you're describing is just another kind of cynicism, <laughs> <laughs> to be completely honest. Like, I think showing up like I, I and to be I this is personally what I think Lubitsch is not quite doing. I think showing a bunch of rich people and saying it's OK if they're all terrible. It's OK if they all have like if they're all like too rich or if they like treat people poorly. But Gaston and Lily aren't rich. They're they're coded as middle class, which I find very interesting. They're coded as like a workaday couple, despite being thieves. They are, you know, how are we introduced to their domestic life? They're both like doing the thing that you do as a kind of idle married couple, which is they're just reading newspapers in their slightly undersized apartment. Yeah, no, it's it's true. And I'm not saying that like richness is what makes these people bad in Lubitsch's view, because I, I don't think that's the case. Right. But I think. That the idea that like these people's behavior and whether it's moral or not, this movie doesn't care about that. I think that's a fundamentally cynical position for a movie. I think that's even more cynical than how cynical I think the film is. If by cynical, you mean terrifically romantic. <laughs> well, I think, well, this gets at what I'm talking about right here, which here's what I, here's, here's Devin, where I feel that your mistake is, right? That sounds very condescending, but like I, I, 
I agree that the film shows the romance between these people. I agree that it shows the eroticism and the attraction um, and the enjoyment of their behavior as sophisticates, as thieves, doing all these things that are signifiers of class outside of their financial position and so on. I agree that Lubitsch is acknowledging this love language, as you very rightly put it, and that he is both depicting and to some degree expressing the romance of this. He's not denying these things exist. But I think that's not quite the same thing as saying that Lubitsch is therefore letting these characters totally morally off the hook, right? I think that, for instance, the, the, the board fees issue is more a demonstration of her flightiness and hypocrisy than it is of like of a real consistent moral impulse, right? We Lubitsch is not trying to depict these people as purely avaristic, as like as just outright evil, I think. I think he's just depicting them as like deeply, deeply flawed and ultimately not good people. Um, and I, I think there's a key moment in the movie that problematizes your perspective here, which is when the Trotskyite <laughs> comes to tell her, like, you spent how much on a bag in this yeah. economy? So you lost the handbag, madame. Yes. And it had diamonds in the back. Yes. And diamonds in the front. Yes. Diamonds all over. Well, have you found it? No. But let me tell you. Any woman who spends a fortune in times like this for a handbag, fooey, fooey, and fooey. Fooey on you, right? His fooey is worse than his bite. And of course, I mean, it's like he's a character who just like came back in time from the Nachka to step into this, right? Because yeah. he's an avowed ideologist who is completely toothless, right? And, and uh, obviously Lubitsch is like having his way there. But it, if there's a through line politically in Lubitsch's films, it's that people who are idealistic or highly ideological they might be correct but that ultimately there's still people like the people who they're criticizing and they won't have the guts or the selflessness or whatever you want to say to really follow through with their ideological positions that is that obviously we're meant to to some extent like laugh at this trotskyite and his ideas but i don't think we're meant to necessarily consider him as wrong Lubitsch, I think, is very deliberately bringing this idea of extreme consumption in the midst of a depression. And he refers to this depression in multiple instances in contrast to the relative affluence that we see on screen. I think Lubitsch is bringing this into the fold deliberately to remind us that these people's lifestyles might not be fair. Is that fair to say? I feel like our arguments are perpendicular to one another, right? Where, oh, yeah. where <laughs> kind of what I'm arguing is whether or not their their lifestyles are fair or whether or not the morality, whether that's, you know, on a, on a wider economic level or on an interpersonal level, that's so tangential to what the movie is even concerned with to me. For example, I made the argument that by feigning aloofness that Colet is, you know, actually preserving her workers' wages. I don't think that the preservation of the workers' wages is actually the main takeaway of that scene. The main takeaway of that scene is that Colet is very willing to play a part to get her way. <laughs> right. You know, that, that that's the main takeaway. She does that repeatedly. I mean, she does that with the safe later in the film. She does that when she's hiring uh, Gaston. She has a way of using the way people see her to manipulate situations to her advantage. And to me, it isn't necessarily the gifting of or the, you know, the, you can say the preservation of the workers wages. That isn't what makes her in this world something someone to admire. 
it's her wiliness that she conceals that makes her someone to admire, which maybe that's cynical. Maybe that's actually a cynical ideal. (laughs) But you know what? What can you do? Because I think like my position is that he's like he has his cake and eats it, too. Right. And and that's like. To me, he absolutely does. No arguments cynical, there. Yeah. The fact that it's cynical and that it's like very sincerely romantic is a uh, uh, part of what makes Lubitsch such a great director, right? And what makes, you know, the last decade plus of his career, you know, generally considered like his best period, I think by us included. What makes it so great is that he's completely willing to offer these absolutely scathing political positions on things and like on people's selfishness and their unwillingness to commit to ideologies and things like this, while also very deeply recognizing that everyone is just a human being and that most of us have pretty similar foibles at bottom, right? Sometimes he does that less cynically and sometimes he does that more cynically. And I think the fact that in Trouble in Paradise, he does it so cynically that that the sentimental element of the moral component going on here, I'm, 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 it's a bit of word salad I'm dropping here. That this, I, I think he's doing it so cynically in Trouble in Paradise that it almost doesn't register as cynicism, right? It almost registers as like nihilism. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I don't. I don't think it quite is. I don't think it tips over into that. That's what Krakauer accused Lubitschow. Yeah, you can make that argument, right? It's 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 an arguable position. Yeah, I just think that's what makes his work great and so interesting and i i feel like in a, a, a couple of my episodes here i've really pushed talking about the political elements of these films and it's not because i'm obsessed with political readings of films in fact i'd say it's generally speaking one of the major components of like academic or what have you readings of films that i'm less immediately interested in but because i think it's really important to consider that these films deal with really political subject matter right it, they're dealing with like class mobility in the midst of like an economic crisis or they're dealing with like monarch monarchical systems and their sustainability or their corruption or what have you or they're dealing with you know like the idea of like communism's sustainability or capitalism's or i think that i think they're really political and i think trouble in paradise should be read partly as political too, given its context and given its subject matter, and especially given the very beginning of the film with the garbage man. And I think that if we're going to read Trouble in Paradise, at least partly as a political text, I feel like it's hard to escape the conclusion that it's a cynical film on some level. I didn't mean for this to become so much of the recording. I'm sorry. But I think it's like it it was the point that you discussed with Tanya that I most strongly disagreed with. I wonder if it's the difference between it being textually cynical versus having a cynical feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that I, I hear you. It's a fun, it's a fun ass film. Well, it's not just fun, <laughs> but it's a very like it's it's just an expressive movie and a movie where the uh, emotions felt by the characters are so well attuned to what the camera's doing and that sort of thing and what the music's doing. I mean, one could also we talked about this with uh, Leah Jacobs, but Lubitsch's incredibly sophisticated use of music in this film where yeah. uh, it feels like he's translated lessons he learned by making all those darn musicals into a non-musical form but what he's done is he's essentially applied musical rhythms to dialogue scenes which almost no one else was doing at the time it is very easy mm-hmm. to overlook now looking back um, how unusual the use of music during dialogue scenes in this movie is yeah i mean you have that opening scene where 
throughout you have the this i don't know what the what the tune is it's probably a famous you know it's probably a traditional tune the venice theme we might call it the dun, 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 dun. that's laced throughout the dialogue scenes and then later on you have the plotting theme for the two suitors that guides the rhythms of their scenes in a more conventional film of this era you might have like a you might have a button at the start of the scene that does like dun, 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 and then you have dialogue that's just dialogue no background score but in this the background score becomes the foreground. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it, it becomes as prominent as the dialogue in a lot of occasions. Uh, I mean, I, I attribute a fair amount of when people say, like, this is his most stylish film to that gesture, that kind of combination of camera movement with really dynamic framing with very purposeful use of music and rhythm. And the way all three of those combine is just like beguiling in so many ways. No, I, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, it's Everything you're saying is true, right? And and the music is is very quicksilver in its identity too. Sometimes the music will be used in a very the term is Mickey Mousey uh, kind of way. Uh, with the which butler walking to, up and down the stairs, that sort of thing. Yeah, it is matching and reacting to the action on screen beat for beat and directly commenting on it. And Mickey Mousing is often used as pejorative. It's just a way of doing music for films. It, it can be good or bad. Obviously, sometimes it's like much less Mickey Mousey. It's very willing to comment on action. Sometimes it's very distinctly unused uh, in favor of, as you said, other rhythmic elements. Um, a, a very obvious one to cite would be, just to bring it up again, yes, madame, yeah, no, madame, yeah. etc. montages. Yes, madame. No, madame. No, madame. Yes, madame. I really want to somehow segue to the clock scene. <laughs> rhythm, rhythm, rhythm. Speaking of rhythm, scenes like, you know, the yes, madame, no, madame scene, uh, you know, um, oftentimes that combination of rhythm and his usual, at this point, really de rigueur uh, offloading of dramatic weight to objects uh, hits something of a career climax with the clock scene. This is a justifiably a famous scene where we have an entire tale told of a, of a night out, you know, where we, we start with an insert on a clock. It's a kind of a very ordinary clock it's not a fancy one it's a little alarm clock on a desk right we hear lily tell gaston now gaston don't you have an affair tonight well i'll leave you alone with that lady but if you behave like a gentleman i'll break your neck it dissolves to 20 minutes later we hear gaston talking with colet yes madame has mademoiselle Vautier gone yes oh that's too bad i wanted to ask her to ask you if you would be good enough to go out to dinner with me tonight and and so the rest of the scene is this escalating little romantic play between the two and what i find interesting about this it it takes a lot of what lubitsch had been doing and to a very small degree what other filmmakers have been doing to its kind of logical extreme which is that no longer are these objects like a button no longer are these objects a something outside commentating on the central subjects that we're still kind of with you know usually even in other Lubitsch films you have a door but you're still seeing the humans through the door (laughs) you have an object but you cut back to the human eventually here you never do the clocks are uh, expressing nearly all of the dramatic action of the scene they are the information they're conveying not only from the time but from where the clock is the specific design of the clock. I mean, the biggest rupture in the scene occurs when they go downstairs and we dissolve from the alarm clock to a much fancier art deco clock. 
<laughs> right? And that art deco plot, you know, expresses, uh, you know, what, what does it express? It expresses the moment when Madame Collet, you know, starts to actually succeed in seducing Gaston. It pans over then to a very phallic image of champagne bottle, a champagne bottle stick. Yeah, sticking up out of a bucket. And there's one other element here that I, I think is worth talking about, and that's calling back to Dave Kerr's uh, line from earlier in the show, and I think it's actually from his uh, video on Rosita, about how silent film is a collaboration between viewer and filmmaker in a way that sound cinema isn't to the same degree, because with silent cinema, you're given less information, you have to infer more. And this scene feels like an inversion of that, where, uh, you know, the, in this instead of the collaboration being we can see them talking, but we can't hear them. In this case is we can hear them talking, but we can't see them. It's an inversion of that. Mm -hmm. And we also see in another scene, too, a version of this that aligns even more with silent cinema, which is that great party scene where we see Calais and Gaston interacting, kind of playing that little game outside with the party guests. And we can't hear them because the point of view of the camera is inside so many times in this movie. And in, 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 in films from this era of Lubitsch, we're denied one sensory input or another. He is using all the tools of formalism to fulfill kind of what he sees as the best thing you can do in cinema, which is don't tell the audience is four, give the audience two and two. And when they add it up to four, they'll love you forever. Yeah, you're talking about, uh, in a lot of ways, it's that Brisson quote, right? The eye solicited alone makes the ear impatient. The ear solicited alone makes the eye impatient use these impatiences as i kind of you know i'm not just watching ernst lubitsch movies for the past year everyone just so you know um, but as i'm watching other cinema i feel like by watching his films so freaking frequently my expectations for the way that filmmakers use inference has become unhealthily unbalanced i'll see like i, I mean i just watched past lives and there was one shot in it where i saw two characters uh, you know, one walking up a staircase and the other walking off to frame left down another road. And I'm like, oh, that metaphor for two characters taking two roads, too obvious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and this is like a pretty subtle visual metaphor. And I, I mean, yeah. it's not so, but it, it's a pretty, you know, garden variety visual metaphor. But even then yeah. I was like, no, no, come on, stop telling me. Don't tell me what to yeah. think. There should be a phallic metaphor somewhere in there. My tolerance for this has grown and grown to the point when I, I get withdrawals when I'm not given this degree of uh of that tension as you say <laughs> and as you say the clock scene is just an incredible expression of that because it's such a great scene i'm going to draw out even more fully the discussion of it by pointing out that even after that art deco interior clock that pans to the champagne bottle there's one more like huge like kind of pseudo grandfather art deco clock after the shot of the champagne bottle you know, the one expectation that you could reasonably have there is that the pattern of clocks has ended, right? That that's, that's the gag that ends the whole sequence. But Lubitsch dissolves to another clock and he makes it still feel like a continuous segment of the sequence because he uses a match dissolve from the neck of the champagne bottle to the clock tower in the distance outside the window it's just unreal, right? Like, yeah. And then he like transitions from a shot of the moon to a shot of like the very circular looking uh, grandfather clock face and so on. This movie's got a lot of really cool dissolves in general. My absolute favorite. This is my favorite formal device in the whole film. It's pretty late in the film. Herbert Marshall's character calls Miriam Hopkins to tell her that he's going to stay overnight with Francis K. We never hear his side of the conversation saying any of this. 
we just see Hopkins's reaction, which is she her face just goes totally blank. She's obviously distressed and she gives very placid, of course, uh-huh, uh-huh type responses. And then there's the, the match dissolve to Kay Francis, who replaces her in the frame, right? He uses the most incredible match dissolve and a match dissolve like any a, a match edit in general for listeners who don't know means that the edit is between two similar visually similar objects especially yeah. similar in shape geometric yeah yeah like they're on the same occupying the same space on screen etc but anyway he uses that match dissolve to show us what she's worried about rather than telling us so the gradually the image of hopkins's defeated face is replaced by Kay francis's very devious gaze uh the hand holding the phone of hopkins uh is replaced by a hand raising a cocktail glass and then just as the dissolve ends, Kay Francis reclines her head back on the chair and the camera moves back like this great exhalation of victory, right? It's also such a great example of the way that the film flows from one moment to the next uh, so well. I mean, <laughs> for example, this shot of Kay Francis did not have to be linked via Dolly to the two suitors uh, having one of the most totally unrelated, by the way, exactly. uh, big plot points in the movie. But they are. And the whole film is comparatively subtle about this. The entire film flows past you like a river. It is so good with linking moments like this together. It never feels like we're doing and then and then and then. Everything is linked in some clever way or another. It, it continues right up until Horton delivers the news to Kay Francis when he just says tonsils. Tonsils. Positively tonsils. Tonsils. Positively tonsils. Just fantastically dense, elegant, just so carefully constructed in its direction, right? But the match, I mean, the match at it, like even like just the deliberate the the little details of the match edit are so good because it's not a perfect match right it's not like hopkins's nose becomes francis's nose and her eyes become francis's eyes etc right in terms of on-screen position they're very close on screen but they're not quite a perfect match that like their angle and their position in the frame it's not quite identical and because of that i i was thinking oh why is that it's still very visually appealing the way that it dissolves over like dissolves are one of the most visually complex things you can do in a movie like to pull off and make it look aesthetically appealing. But I realized that the reason why Lubitsch is doing is because if he made it an exact match, then it would suggest that Hopkins is maybe becoming Francis or that he was suggesting that the two are one of the same. But he all he's trying to do is saying that, no, Francis, her character is replacing Hopkins's character. It's just, it's so nuanced and precise in how he does it, right? And he's already proven with other match cuts, including like the clock tower one, that he's very capable of getting it exactly identical, like putting things in the exact right place in the frame to make the dissolve just an almost dead on match, right? Yeah, it's just amazing. <laughs> I wish I could build off that because I have a hard time pinning down my favorite formal moment in the film because there's so many good ones. Some days it's mm -hmm. the clock. Some days yeah. it's the it's the opening scene as a whole mm -hmm. or the just that dolly shot. At other times, it's the scene where Gaston and Colet more or less consummate their relationship, right? The scene where she finally kind of corners him, cajoles him into admitting the truth that he has feelings for her. They kiss, you know, they, they share that wonderful, like tense chemistry where how they express their feelings is by trading dominant gestures, right? You know, her, yeah. you know, I could fire you just like that. Monsieur Laval, I have a confession to make to you. 
You like me. In fact, you're crazy about me. But incidentally, I don't like you. I don't like you at all. And I wouldn't hesitate one instant to ruin your reputation. Like that. You wouldn't? No, I wouldn't. Like that? Like that. You have this incredible sequence where Colet kind of says aloud one of the many themes of the film, which is we have a long time, days, and it cuts to one reflection, months, it cuts to a different mirror, and then years, and it is two shadows on a bed. We have a long time ahead of us, Gaston. Weeks, months, years. And that, too, you know, you can you can isolate the two shadows on the bed. And that is one of the most suggestive images I've ever seen from the 30s cinema. And it's a very suggestive era. <laughs> Early 30s, at least. Uh, we weren't wanting for suggestive images. There's so many ways into this. And my feelings on this moment are less clear other than, wow, that is absolutely astonishing. But, you know, what the scene is doing is, you know, aside from collapsing a whole lifetime of intimacy into a single moment, what it's doing is it's enunciating what Colette has to offer. What she has to offer is right there in the title, it's paradise, right? It's this stasis. He doesn't have to run anymore. Uh, he's safe here in this negative void space of, uh, of a mansion that Hans Dreyer has built for us. As we cut from shot to shot, they get simpler and simpler, right? And that second is just two silhouettes on a bed and that shot is mostly negative space. It's this promise of comfort. It's kind of that answer to that question of, you know, what can money buy? Money can buy a void. A lot of sex. She's offering a void. She's offering a life away from those coded middle class, but also coded as thievery, <laughs> you know, troubles. Yeah, it's a highlight of his career, that moment. It's just wild. And then the phone scene comes right after. So maybe I'm just running. Like, maybe I'm just licking up the fumes of the bedroom <laughs> shadow moment when I say that that one's my favorite. One little element, too, that I want to highlight here is how well Lubitsch hides his own construction of various scenes in the film. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When I watch many of his films for the first time from this period, especially. I, you know, I'm always, as a cinematographer, I'm often just clocking subconsciously. Okay, there's the master shot. Then we're going to coverage. Reverse, reverse. Back to that same master. Mm -hmm. Is that the same master? Okay, it is. And with Lubitsch, every time I rewatch any of his films, I realize gradually how rarely he returns to coverage, for example. I mean, th there's one scene in this where I realized that there's at least three more shots than I thought. And that's that first scene where, where Gaston enters Colet's bedroom and she finds him at kind of gazing at her bed lovingly. And obviously the, the joke is that he's like pretending to only be interested in like, oh, this is a nice vintage bed, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. beautiful woodwork or whatever he says. But yeah. I, that's a, such a great example where we go from, you know, uh, Calais enters, we whip pan from her to Gaston. That's one shot. And then we cut to a medium shot of Calais. And then we cut to a wide of Gaston that is looks similar to that shot we landed on of Gaston from at the end of the whip pan. But no, it's a different shot. And what do we do? We dolly in to a medium two shot. And then we cut back to Colet in yet another new setup. Every single time we've cut in this scene, it's been a totally new setup. But Lubitsch has done absolutely nothing to show off that fact. He is just 
tailoring. He's doing, you know, the classic, the thing that we all credit John Ford with, rightfully, uh, which is editing in camera. He is essentially constructing the scene, not of, okay, let's cut, let's, let's get the coverage. Let's get close up. So it's this designed in post. No, he is editing it before he sets foot on the film set. Basically <laughs> it is astonishing how little attention it calls to itself in that context. Yeah. He's so like, I, I, I'm really glad you brought that up because as much as I made a point of talking about how at so many moments, you're so aware of his presence in the camera, right? He's equally capable of becoming a very unassuming directorial presence even as he's constantly formally modulating. Later in that same scene, you get a moment that's kind of on the other end of that spectrum, right? Where she goes to open her safe. And when that happens, there's, you know, a fairly, again, unassuming looking shot. It's a medium shot from behind her, you know, a little to her right. And the safe is just, you know, it's half visible uh, from the perspective of the camera and you can't really see it too well behind her hands. And so as a result, you know, it's just a little out of view of the audience who might be craning their necks to try to see it, right? For the same, because they know exactly why Marshall is asking about it, right? And then at that moment, Lubitsch deploys a pan left to reveal that Marshall is right behind her, just peering over her shoulder very obviously, um, just like we are, right? And then that little gag of perspective is followed by a tight close-up on Francis's hands working the combination dial, uh, followed by another of Marshall's hand miming the movements of unlocking the safe. There's two things that Lubitsch is doing here with this series of shots. One is he's ratcheting up the tension, partly by using more stylistically distinct and disruptive shots, you know, which is like one of the absolute classic cinematic ways to build tension is that you start interrupting the formal pattern of the shots that came before in order to push the audience off guard, et cetera, et cetera. But he's doing that and he's creating more momentum with it, but he's also using it completely within the stylistic and tonal register of the film to create these little comic moments, right? It's maybe it's too subtle for me to call it a gag like I did, but this, this just this little joke of the audience is kind of like the safe is just out of their view. And then it pans to show Marshall also just kind of craning his neck, you know, like pushing his head like eight inches past his shoulders so that he can try to get a better look at what she's doing. And similar to like the little mirroring shot of their two hands, right? Like the, the little miming thing, like just this little slightly comic beat. The last episode of How Would Lubitsch Do It that I listened to before recording this was the last season's finale uh, with Brom. Eternal Love. Yeah. and Don't worry. We all forgot about that movie already. One moment one moment in it, I think you say, this podcast isn't interested in you know passing judgment on whether these films are good or not. And you said that I internally thought like, ah, I'm going to, I'm going to make the point of the Trouble in Paradise episode I do to pass judgment on whether the film is good or not. And the reason I bring up this moment, other than, you know, further like contrasting his uh, ability to, you know, shift between different formal registers for very clear purposes. You know, ultimately what I come out of is that he's doing all this stuff at once and he's doing it. And like, what can you say about this? Is that like, this is just really good. This is the good shit. And like, it's stuff where I don't know what I would say someone's first Lubitsch would be. Uh, people certainly at least I think used to commonly recommend Trouble in Paradise as a starting point, which I think is actually a pretty bad starting point. For Lubitsch, but if you're tuned into the rhythms of how he operates, then there's not a hell of a lot of more fun Lubitsch movies. 
than this one. And the biggest reason why this is so fun is that it's just such a fireworks show of a director, like just completely hitting his stride um, with absolute confidence in his craft. I think this is his best film up to this point. <laughs> At the very least, it's his best film up to this point. This feels like the culmination of everything he learned during the silent period. It feels like a combination of everything he learned directing his four musicals in a row, <laughs> you know, with uh, with Maurice and Jeanette and some in some configuration or another. To me, the most special films are the ones where I can tell they can only have been made by these people at this point in time, right? Uh, to me, that's the highest praise I can give any individual film, even if it's not a good movie. You know, that's part of why we love The Treasure Planet, right? That's part of why we love Plan 9. But in this case, you know, and there's a few Lubitsch films that I could say that about. It's part of why I love to be or not to be. But in this case, it's a film that could only have been made at the height of the Great Depression during the pre-code era by the guy who directed The Smiling Lieutenant and The Oyster Princess and Eternal Love and everything he had directed before that <laughs> and only acted out by these three players. Yeah, it's one of those perfect, perfect storms of a film. Yeah, you're bringing to mind the... One other Brisson quote that I have committed to memory, which is... I love donkeys. <laughs> Make visible what without you might perhaps never have been seen. Thanks again, Will, for joining us for this. Of course. For our second part of Trouble in Paradise, you're going to join us next season for Heaven Can Wait. And I'll tell you, can't I wait. can't wait. <laughs> there we are. Next week, Kryn Gabbard joins us for our final discussion on Trouble in Paradise. Head over to ErnstCast.com for information as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes and our Discord server. How Would Lubitsch Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. Riley Cronin was our dialogue editor for this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you happen to use. It helps other people find our podcast and therefore find Ernst Lubitsch. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. 